You're listening to the Slavic Connection ACAC 2019 San Francisco. Welcome back to the Slavic Connection. Today I have the pleasure of being joined by Dr. Bryant. He is a professor of history at UNC Chapel Hill, and his work focuses on nationalism and urban experience in Central and East Europe, with a focus on the Czech Republic. Dr. Bryant, welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, so you're here to present a part of the reason you're here is to present a paper on Egon Erwin Kitsch, who's a Prague walker, if you will. Um, would you mind telling us a little bit more about him, kind of background on walking as a way of experiencing urban environments? Yeah. So, um, so Kitsch was a a German Jewish writer who um, began writing a column in 1910 for about a year and a half for a German language newspaper called Bohemia. And in these, these articles and these essays that he wrote, or feuilletons that he wrote, he often began with a walk. And it was because he was a, a very avid walker in Prague. And so one of the things I try to do in this paper is try to recreate the, uh, the possibilities for walking in the city in the late 19th century and, and how Kish both was emblematic but also stepped outside of the norms of, of walking practices at that time. Great. And he wrote a column called Prague Forays, translated into English. And I know that you discuss a bit how the word foray has certain meanings and the translation is debated by some because it comes from this German word, uh, Streifzuge, which can mean ramble, but also has this idea of an expedition. Would you mind speaking more to that? Yeah. So so he named it, yeah, he, he named it Prager Streifzuge, which... Um, in the early iterations of this word, it meant a sort of military incursion. And then it meant um, a sort of incursion into a field of knowledge. And by the late 19th century in, in German, and there were several, many books um, published at that time in Prague that sort of have this meaning. It was a combination of wandering, but with a purpose, but also wandering through a subject. And so so that's how he constructed or constructed these, these uh, texts that he wrote. But it was also, in you know, many ways, how he walked the city with a purpose to discover down and out portions of the city, to, to make visible the, the poverty that the, the urban middle class wanted to make invisible, and also just to, um, to celebrate people who would normally not be celebrated in the city. And he did all this with, by walking, and, and, and this was very central to his, his understanding of a, a positive urban, urban experience. So this is connected into a broader field of people who walked major European cities in the 19th and 20th centuries to experience them. And I feel like most people are familiar with um, the Paris of Napoleon III and Hausmanization. Maybe they know um, Paris Street Rainy Day and they, they understand what you know Baudelaire and Walter Benjamin talk about. But how does Prague differ from that? Mm -hmm. experience well, I think it's I mean it's different in a couple ways I mean first with regards to Kish I mean Baudelaire was writing in the 1860s about the Flaneur and he was writing in many ways as as you, as old Paris was disappearing um, but he was also writing in a moment when crowds and the rush of the city was becoming a, a sort of constituted element of the modern city and he's very playful when he talks about it and when Benjamin was writing in the 19 well, actually, the late 1930s, um, he was referring to a Berlin which was crowded. It was the, a truly modern metropolis. The Prague in the late 19th century, early 20th century, 
it was a fastly, it was a industrializing city, it was a modernizing city, but it wasn't, it wasn't very crowded. And it certainly wasn't the metropolis of the type of Paris or, or Berlin. And so, so what I was trying to argue in that paper is that there, there's different types of urban walking experiences. And, and Prague is, because of its topography and its population, um, especially at that time, kind of lends itself more to wandering streets and, and to going around corners and to finding hidden nooks and, and not being caught up with the crowd, which is, which is so much what, um, what a lot of the 19th century literature on walking is about. So you take a more positive view of this foray out into the city than others may. Um, you discussed this in the panel where you presented your paper that some see it as um, sort of patronizing or bringing back these stories to sell to the middle class, but you don't see it in the same way? Well, I think, I mean, I guess I was, I was a bit of a foil in a way. I mean, I think, I think the, the most important thing to kind of take away is so throughout, this comes from an edited volume that I have called Walking Histories, and it's, it's going to be appearing in this, in a book that I hope will come out in a year um, called Prague, Five Modern Lives. And what, what, we all, what, we, what we've traced out is throughout the, the 19th century, um, the middle classes within Prague, within Prague and elsewhere in Europe have, have often tried to cordon off um, various parts of the city for their own, and they... They've created these they created these boundaries um, through the creation of neighborhoods, through housemanization, and, and it's Prague um, analog, which was Asanatsa, the destruction of Yosefov, and so forth. But they also do this have done this through very sort of um, real estate, sort of um, well through the purchase of real estate, but also through policing of of various neighborhoods and the, the rise of the number of misdemeanors that could that police use throughout the 19th century to remove people from poorer people from parks or remove them from middle-class site. And so I think what I was trying to get with Kish was typically when we think of middle-class walkers, we think of middle-class practices of reasserting their middle-class status. And what Kish was trying to do, I, I would argue, is at least bring a little bit of empathy for, for the, um, the poor sections of the city and the poorer people of the city into interview, even though he didn't offer answers. He just... And he played with it, and he took had a little smirk. He was very proud of having speaking this Cockney Czech and being be able to hang with the, the locals. But um, but nonetheless, I think it was it was meant well, I believe. What is Cockney Czech? Oh, just sort of a working class Czech in the slang that was. That I mean, was, I I went more general. Like Cockney Czech is that still around? Can we? Oh, well, find I mean, recordings of that. That sounds interesting. Oh, that's a good question. I don't really know. I don't. I I would imagine that there would. Would have been ethnologists. Well, I don't know. That's a good question. I don't know. I'm trying to think of. I can't think of any literature per se that's recreated it. But I, I, I'd have to think about that. That's a good question. So you say that this is part of a broader work on five other five total um, lives of people experiencing mm -hmm. Prague. What were the other four that you're working with? So, um, so the the book is around centered around five people who were marginalized in different ways by various efforts at nationalization in the city over time and, and how they attempted to create alternative sense of, of place and, and community of sense, alternative senses of belonging over time. And so the first person is a, was a, a mediocre Czech writer, Czech guidebook writer named uh, Karl Vladislav Zop, who 
wrote the first Czech language guidebook to Prague in 1847, at a moment when the Czech middle classes were, were rising up to sort of challenge the predominance of the German middle classes. Um, and Kish is the second. The third one is a, uh, a Bolshevik carpenter in World War I, Haps Habsburg Army veteran, who, um, who I argue, joined protests, mass street protests, and joined um, the Communist Party Gymnastics Club to seek out a, um, a sense of belonging in interwar Prague. And, and the fourth is a, um, the daughter of one of the Slonsky trial victims, Hanna Frekova, who wrote a beautiful memoir. It was published a, about 10 years ago now about her experiences in Prague and trying to find a normal life having, having lived through this trauma. And the last person is um, Zhuang Nguyen Yiraskova, who is a second generation Vietnamese migrant to Prague who wrote, began writing a blog in 2008 about the experience of growing up in a Vietnamese household in, in the Czech Republic um, after, um, well, in the post-communist post era. And, um, and her, her Czech is, um, is beautiful. And I think it's, it's, so she struggles. She's kind of working through ideas of what it means to be Czech and what it means to be Vietnamese. Be, be Vietnamese. That's fascinating. I know that there's a very large Vietnamese community in Prague I hadn't, really encountered it much mm -hmm. beyond the amazing food obviously but yeah she's one of the I mean there are several now several um, women especially who are um, kind of spokes not I wouldn't say spokespeople for the community but are now becoming prominent voices and she was one of the first before 2008 there were very few if any Vietnamese voices in to be found in Czech culture more gen more generally and, um, and they really there were actually five women began blogging about the same time in 2008, the spring of 2008. And, um, and that really was a, it was a rupture moment in the history of the community in many ways. It's fascinating. Is there something about 2008 other than internet and blog culture that spurred that on? Well, one is, yeah, one is exactly that. The internet and blog culture was, uh, was kind of, um, was developing. So, and, um, and Zhuang, for example, got a, received a blog on Aktualna Sezet, which is a, the first online all-news organization uh, at that time. And I think, so that's part of its technology. The other thing is there was a, this, there was the first large group of second-generation Vietnamese who were entering university. It was sort of the beginning of that wave. And so they, um, they began to then find each other at universities, and they began to organize, and they began to talk about these things because Previously, not, not not exclusively, but in generally speaking, second generation Vietnamese, um, they grew up in you know near the the, the, the stores where their, their parents worked, and they were geographically dispersed throughout the country and throughout the city, and and so the 2008 was this moment when going to university and having this ability to connect over the internet was one of the first times that they could really you know, they kind of find each other and and talk about these things. Interesting. So do you see Prague as this middle-class, golden Slavic city of a hundred spires? Has that changed much? I mean, obviously it has changed to some extent, but to what degree over the, la over the period you're talking about? Yeah, I think, I mean, the way I, 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 the way I conceptualize the book is that each, every, that it goes through different phases. Even though Prague was crowned as or determined to be Czech and, and very very um, radically so in the late 19th century. It, it always takes on different iterations depending on um, 
who's in power and, and the economic, what economic class is in power at that time, and of course the context in which they are. And so, I mean, it's a cliche to say, but Prague, Prague is the palimpsest of all these various iterations. And they're all Czech in a different way, and they're often reread with different meanings over time. So, for example, Jan Hus was you know, embraced by 19th century middle class patriots, but they were also appropriate as, as Jakob Benesch writes in his book by the, by the Social Democrats as a, as a working class hero, um, or sometimes lower class hero of, of, of long ago, and then, then the communists as well appropriated Hus. So, so that, that figure of Hus, you know, took on, whether it be the statue or the Bethlehem church, took on different iterations and meanings over time, but it was always Czech, you know, and, and, but, um, but Czech in a different way. Right, different. I know that a lot of communist era books on the genesis of Czechoslovakia really draw on the Taborite element of mm -hmm. the Hussites. That's right. But there's also the nobility, and it really kind of becomes this formational moment of Czechness, depending on, I mean, for everyone, but depending on who you are at the time, mm -hmm. it, it mm -hmm. changes who it is. So um, that's fascinating. Do you. Have any other projects that you're currently working on related to, I mean, anything, anything in your research? Oh, yeah, well, um, so along with my colleagues, uh, Katarzyna Chapkova and Diana Dumitru, who are actually meeting very soon now, um, we received an ACLS collaboration grant to write a new book on the Slonsky trials. And so we're, we're doing preliminary research on that right now, but, um, but it's exciting. It's, it's fun to write with someone else, too. It's, yeah. It's a real, it's a real joy. Great. We look forward to reading that and then the, all your works when they start to come out next year. You yeah. said next year is when we should look for the... Well, it's, um, it's off with the reader's reports right now, and so it goes through the reader's reports, and hopefully if, if that all works out, then, then it will be in production this fall and hopefully be on the bookshelves in the winter of, well, January of next year, January 2021, I hope. So, but right. Looking forward to it. Yeah. All right, Dr. Bryant, thank you very much for coming on the show. Great. Well, thank you so much. Welcome back to the Slavic Connection. Today I have the pleasure of being joined by Dr. Laura Todd, teaching associate at the University of Nottingham. Dr. Todd, would you mind giving a short introduction to your biography and your research or teaching interests? So I'm a member of the section for Russian and Slavonic Studies in the Department of Modern Languages and Cultures at Nottingham. Um, I teach broadly across both areas of um, East and South Slavonic culture, history, um, film, literature, all of those different areas. I also teach languages as well, both Russian and BCS. Um, so I'm a teaching associate at the moment. Um, I passed or I received my PhD in 2016 um, and the topic of my PhD was youth film in Russia and Serbia since the 1990s. So this, um, the kind of topics that I'm talking about today are an extension of those issues that I was exploring um, in, my, in my doctoral work. And the paper that you are giving at ACES is entitled To Conform or Not to Conform, The Arrival of MTV to Yugoslavia. Yeah. And which, correct me if I'm wrong, you argue that there's been a lot of attention on essentially dissent in youth cultures in the 80s in Yugoslavia. I would assume the punk movement. Yeah. Um, receiving a lot of scholarship. Wave, yeah. <laughs> but you argue that there hasn't been as much attention on kind of mainstream pop culture? Um, I definitely think so. I think that's also partly the case in, in the Soviet Union as well. We tend to focus on dissident culture um, because it's perhaps the, the thing that we were exposed to the most um, 
in this kind of before the fall of the, the Soviet Union and before the fall of Yugoslavia as well. I do think that Yugoslavia is a different case, though, in general. I mean, it's very different from the Soviet Union. Its pop culture was more aligned probably to the West than it mm -hmm. was to anything else. Especially music culture. Yes, definitely. It had a very active rock scene from the earliest days, um, and it was very much kind of... It was possible to listen to these artists um, and to go and see these concerts in a way that it probably wouldn't have been possible in the Soviet Union. So, um, yeah, and things do, I mean, th things I think start to change a little bit in the 1980s because we have a new generation of younger um, rock artists and punk artists, various other different movements and influences mm -hmm. coming out in the 1980s. Um, and they are separate from these earlier rock acts who were very popular before and possibly also followed that kind of dissident culture as well. Um, the, the rock acts that came out in the 1980s weren't necessarily um, non-dissenting, but they were very different and they kind of were trying to sort of carve their own way in the rock scene um, in Yugoslavia. So some of my work is kind of an extension of looking at that, but also looking at mainstream culture as well. So what young people were actually watching and what they wanted mm -hmm. to listen to, what they wanted to watch. And I think that we have a tendency to think about MTV in terms of what it is today. So we think about MTV and we think about this kind of mass com commercialization, the shift towards reality TV shows, um, it being a sign of commodification. But actually when it began, it was very popular with young people for the fact that it represented a new stage in kind of youth rebellion um, and different aesthetics that they could live by. Um, and it was a very visual culture as well. So part of it is about the music, but part of it is also about the way that young people lived their lives, styled themselves, um, thought of themselves, and just generally lived, actually. Um, and young Yugoslavs in the 1980s would have considered themselves to be closer aligned to the West than anything else. Uh, we can see that quite a lot in the kinds of um, works that come out of the collapse of Yugoslavia in the 1990s and a lot of young people sort of saying that they didn't imagine that this could happen in a country that was so aligned to those kind of western cultural values um, and I think we have a tendency to think about Yugoslavia in terms of what it was like in the Soviet Union but you know they had access to products like jeans to mm -hmm. records to um, television programs to films um, and all of those aspects of culture as well. And so how did these young Yugoslavs in the 80s access Yugoslavia? Was it broadcasted? Was it available? Access how popular MTV. was it? Yeah. Yes. Well, I think we have to think about the kind of the emergence of MTV in the first mm -hmm. place. So MTV is launched in August 1981, and it's a big deal um, because there had been attempts to try and construct music television, pure music television channels um, before that. In the 1970s, there were attempts to do that, and they weren't entirely popular, um, and there were television programs that were dedicated to um, usually recordings of songs and um, the most famous thing of course is the Beatles um, they were producing their own film and then it, it turns into an extended form of a music video really so it's kind of a musical so MTV is launched in 1981 as a cable channel in the US um, and the thing that really changes when the arrival of satellite and the spread of satellite television comes about so before then though there's there's quite a lot of evidence that young people somehow had access to MTV. I imagine that probably there were some recordings shown on other television channels. Um, the main, uh, so there's two events that really make me think that actually MTV was having a cultural impact very early on in the 1980s. Um, so firstly in 1982, um, the main newspaper Politica, it uh, released a supplement called Rock 82. 
Um, and it was based on, it was kind of a, attached to this uh, magazine called Strip 82, um, so a comic kind of supplement. Um, and Rock 82, the original editor, he said that, you know, he was inspired by, he, he realized that young people wanted to have a new kind of aesthetics. They wanted to um, consume culture that was inspired by things like MTV, and he explicitly mentioned MTV um, in a, uh, there's a documentary series about the Yugoslav rock scene, um, Rockovnik. And so he mentioned that he wanted to try and uh, kind of emulate that, and particularly after the first, um, the first television, um, the first music video shown on television, Video Killed the Radio Star. Um, and so it was clear that they had maybe seen the launch of MTV, it was a big deal. Um, and then also later on in 1985, they contribute to the Live Aid series, which is, and, and there's a corresponding um, rock uh, performance in the, the Red Star Stadium in Belgrade. And so they contribute to Live Aid, which was then screened on MTV. What artist played? Um, so Party Breakers, um, uh, Electricity or Orgasm, um, and a few other. Interestingly, though, some of the older rock artists refused to appear. And so originally, Goran Bregovic, he refused to take part in it. Um, and so this is where I can see the kind of, there's a sort of split forming really between the older, who, the older artists who could probably see that MTV was going to turn into something that was modification. Yeah, exactly. And so originally, Goran Bregovic refused to take part, but actually he backtracks on that later on and he does appear in the video um, for, for this song, but he doesn't actually kind of appear in the credits for it. So, um, but mainly the, those who took part were were bands that had emerged in the, in the early 1980s. Um, so they take part in this Live Aid performance and I think this also shows how they align themselves, right? They're not aligning themselves to that sort of what they consider to be the Soviet bloc culture. They're aligning themselves to Western um, culture. Um, and so, yes, yeah, so there is this uh, performance in the Red Star um, Stadium, Belgrade. So the earliest um, examples that I can clearly see that people were watching MTV broadcasts um, were some evidence from 1989 where um, a young Sarajevan woman, um, uh, Lida Hewitt, um, she talks about how there was an illegal satellite constructed on a block of flats in Sarajevo and she watched, they watched MTV through that. So that was 1989 um, and I think there is some evidence that probably it was able to, they were more easily able to watch um, MTV after the launch of MTV Europe in 1987. So there is a few kind of corresponding things. There is the expansion of satellite television around 1984. 1985 but also we have to consider as well that there were more satellites installed in Sarajevo in particular after the Winter Olympics in 1984. In Sarajevo Olympics. particularly out yeah. of all the other cities in Yugoslavia? Yeah I think so but most of the I think that it is clear that it was kind of I, I find limited evidence actually from Croatia um, and Slovenia so if anybody has some examples from Croatia and Slovenia uh, call out to the listeners then let me know um, and then so yeah so it's kind of focused I guess on, on Sarajevo um, and Belgrade, um, maybe kind of as bigger cities, perhaps. Um, so in Belgrade, though, actually MTV is screened in a slot on this um, channel called Treci Canal 3K, um, and it's actually shown. Uh, they obviously have paid and they've kind of interacted with MTV to have this um, agreement that they could screen certain aspects of MTV programming for a specific time. So people definitely could watch it from around 1989. Um, legally and illegally as well um, and I think it's really interesting that those channels um, wanted to screen MTV they knew it was popular amongst young people um, and it was a new part of culture so 
And so you mentioned this divide between older acts who, rock acts specifically, who had kind of more credibility maybe in the scene, and then you had these younger artists. What were the reasons for, I guess it's a double-sided question, what were the reasons for these older artists not wanting to uh, maybe be seen as selling out to MTV? Or what were the benefits of these younger artists being associated with MTV in this mainstream culture? Yeah, so I think, um, so the only two Yugoslav acts that I can find that were actually shown on MTV on, on, an, on the US channel um, are Disciplina Kichme, um, who appear in 1990, and Laibach. So, really? um, yeah, so Laibach also feature on MTV as well. Which um, is interesting, just for the listeners, Laibach yeah. is kind of a very controversial very band, controversial. very political. Yeah, but I think we also have to consider that parts of MTV did have that kind mm-hmm. of alternative side as well they did have television shows which were specifically kind of orientated towards those people who were interested in those acts but MTV is all about shock value and and Liebach is pure shock value in that kind of commentary I'm sure they would absolutely hate it has somehow been related to this idea of what MTV is about but it was invented to create shock value so Liebach yeah very um, controversial in particular because they use um, uh, symbolism from Nazi Germany but the way that they use it is is intentionally um, meant to be a kind of I guess a cynical look and take at those symbols and, and how it's related to um, what's happening in Yugoslavia at the time. So yeah, controversial, but also they fit into that shock value of MTV. Disciplina Kichme is one that I think is kind of unusual though, because they're not the most well-known Yugoslav band by any means, um, but they feature and they have an English version of their song, their Chipesme, um, which is children's song, which appears on MTV. Um, and then it feeds back into their culture. Um, so there is an omnibus film um, from the Faculty of Dramatic Arts in 1989. And some of the um, scenes from that film are part of their, their, their television, their music television um, broadcast on MTV. So it's part of that video. So they have this interaction between their kind of lives back in Yugoslavia and also this um, desire, I think, for any, um, a lot of young bands to want to be involved with um, getting more, um, maybe having some more kind of the word like exposure abroad definitely um and so yeah maybe they were looking in the 80s there was a lot of cynicism about yugoslavia Mm. as a project from youth yeah do you think maybe looking westward was maybe kind of a yeah strategy of preservation yeah i think it it could be definitely um and as the 1990s um started to unfold in all of its horror as we know um MTV took on a really different role actually for a lot of these young people. Um, so there are these kind of older acts who don't want to take part in things like Live Aid. I think Live Aid is a lot of cynicism around it. Um, but then in the 1990s, um, MTV took a real interest in Yugoslavia. Um, they have this kind of socio-political humanitarian side to them. Um, and so they give awards to two organizations, uh, Radio B92, which is, um, the only source of alternative information in Belgrade during the 1990s. Um, interestingly, also Radio B92 um, aired MTV programming at night as well. So um, I don't know whether that's maybe the during connection. During the 90s. Yeah, during so the 90s. Kind of, yeah, yeah so the alternative station also playing yeah. mainstream pop culture. Play mainstream pop culture as well. Um, perhaps because that was what young people who they're kind of aiming for were interested in having. So I have some critics um, as well from the from the 1990s and the 2000s talking about the role of MTV and one of them in particular, Tamara Skroza, sort of says that this was the only um, 
the only window they had outside of this kind of oppressive culture. So for those who don't know, the culture um, in Belgrade in particular um, in the 1990s was this really, really um, repressive information kind of um, total blackout really on the part of the Milosevic regime. Um, and so it was the only outlet that some people had. And um, Skoroza kind of talks about how it saved really a generation of people from being influenced by Turbofok, by this kind of um, really aggressive, ultra um, glamorized form of um, really twisted form of folk music. Um, and that's actually something that's repeated as well in, in um, an article I found from Croatia about them saying a similar thing. So I don't know how it would have been accessed in Croatia. I can't find that information at the moment, but it's clear that it was available and people did seek out those sorts of information. So whether it was through Radio B92, I don't know whether it was possible to get it. Depends on the location, I guess, in Croatia. But um, there was this element that it was seen as a saving kind of force because by this point as well, um, the Milosevic regime had set up their own music television channels. First it was TV Palma and then it's TV Pink, which kind of remains this um, very... Kind of trashy Yeah, channel. really trashy channel. <laughs> kind of is, yeah, an understatement. But yes, definitely. So so it takes on a different role and they win these awards, um, these Free Your Mind awards. So it's B92 and also Oppor, um, the resistance mm -hmm. movement, um, the youth-led resistance movement also is, an, is awarded um, this Free Your Mind award at the MTV EMAs. I've also found as well that um, MTV went to um, Yugoslavia and they filmed one of the protest marches where young people were singing um, and they screened that as well. The one problem is with MTV is now it's so commercialized that it's really hard to get a hold of their, their archives actually. Mm -hmm. And I, from what I can see, they don't have any archives. So I would love to try and hunt that down. It's not on YouTube, but... Um, but so are yeah. those maybe future steps for your research? Absolutely. Where do you think you want to take this project? So I would love to take it to its full kind of realization, which is to do like a proper oral history discussion where people talk about how they accessed MTV, what they felt about it at the time. I think it's kind of difficult with all oral history, right? So you mm -hmm. remember it in a different way. But um, but I do, I, I think there's a lot of evidence that people were watching it. I actually found out, I even initially started thinking about this because one of my friends who's from Southern Hungary mentioned that she used to watch MTV on um, this Serbian channel. So it has a lot broader implications. It kind of spreads to different nations in the region. Um, and I would like to try and explore it as a way of looking at a different element of how the West kind of joined, um, how the Western culture influenced Yugoslavia as well. So that's what I want to do. A little bit more research. If there are any people who want to participate in some interviews with me, maybe tell me about how they access MTV, um, then you know how to contact me, hopefully. <laughs> it's Laura Todd. <laughs> um, this has been fantastic, Thank Dr. You. Todd. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Best of luck with your project. Thank you. Thanks for having me. The Slavic Connection is produced by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you.